Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes in 2020. This week we're welcoming a new co-host to the show. It's Rachel Lloyd, who is Assistant Editor for Books and Arts at The Economist. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. There's more from us in a minute, but first a message from our new sponsor. This episode of Always Take Notes is supported by Clean Prose, London's first co-working space designed specifically for writers. Based over three storeys in Shoreditch in the east of the city, Clean Prose's mission is to provide writers of all stripes, from novelists to playwrights, with a space and a community designed especially for them. To foster strong connections, Clean Prose offers a professional network that many writers miss when they work alone at home, at a library or in a noisy cafe. The ground floor is an event space, offering workshops, talks from experts and book launches. The first floor is an open plan common room. It is a space for writers to connect, collaborate, drink coffee and develop their professional networks within the publishing TV, film and other creative industries. The second floor is a totally quiet space in which to concentrate and write, with private desks, lockers and an extensive book collection. To find out more, go to cleanprose.co.uk. Always take notes, listeners, are eligible for a five-day pass to Clean Prose. To redeem this offer, please email write at cleanprose.co.uk with the subject line ATN-Welcome5. Hello, it's us again, and in this episode of Always Take Notes, we talked to Alexandra Pringle, the editor-in-chief of Bloomsbury Publishing. We talked about Alexandra's early career at pioneering feminist imprint Virago, her spell as a literary agent, and her time at Bloomsbury through Harry Potter mania and beyond. It's a fascinating episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Alexandra, to Always Take Notes. Um, I'd like to start by asking you about Virago, if that's okay. I joined um, at the lowliest position that um, we, we called the slave um, or the ship worker. Um, so I joined as an assistant part-time. At the time, I was working on an art magazine called Art Monthly. And uh, for that job, I got f- paid five pounds a week for five mornings a week. And I needed money because I'd married for the first time and I'd married an artist and um, somebody had to get some money. So um, I got this job at Virago, which was three days a week. And it was as the office slave. And had Virago, how long had it been in existence for at that stage? It was very early days. So I was the fourth person to join and I think it had been going for two years. Could you spin the yarn of its establishment and the role that you played once you had joined? So Virago was founded by Carmen Khalil and Ursula Owen basically to change the world. And they had a very direct message which was to bring feminism to the publishing world and for it to flow outwards into the outside world. Um, It began by publishing books, always they were by and about women, um, but they were a mixture of history, politics, um, sociology and literature. And when I joined, the Virago Modern Classics series had just been founded and that was the series that I ended up working on for all my 12 years at Virago. Could you uh, put what Virago was doing at that time into the broader context? So this was the 1970s? Yes, yeah, it so, was. So the broader context of, of how publishing looked then compared to today. Publishing was very different then because it was um, full of small companies, family-owned mainly. The corporations hadn't really begun. They were just growing. 
And they were companies on the whole founded by men. I mean, if you think of Sequin Warburg and Jonathan Cape and Andre Deutsch and Weidenfeld and so on. Um, and they were, as we used to say, gentlemanly. And we were anything but gentlemanly. And what, when you came to work on the classics list, how did you go about putting that together? And what did you look for in, in a classic? Well, Carmen Khalil started the classics list. And when I joined um, the company, it was the list that I was naturally attracted to because I had spent my childhood reading many of the books that we were publishing. I had already read um, a lot of the people who were in the classic series. So I was, in a, in a way, I was an apprentice to the classics and I learned to do it through working with Carmen, who was a terrifying um, boss in so many ways, but also inspirational. Why, so? mm? Why terrifying? Um, because she was exacting and had a very big temper and uh, she didn't mince her words. She told you exactly what she thought of you. And I learned, for example, how to write cover copy um, under her tutelage. And we would sit by side, side by side and she'd say things like, why did you write this? And I think, well, if I knew, <laughs> I wouldn't have written it. Um, but, I, but I learned everything from her at the same time. And these founders who'd, who'd set it up, where had they come from in terms of what were they doing previously and where yeah. had the funding come from for Senate Prerogate? Carmen had worked in publishing in publicity. She was a very famous, as they used to be called, publicity girl. Um, Ursula Owen had also worked in publishing but on the editorial side. Carmen was the, had the idea of Virago but very soon after Ursula joined and together they 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 formed a complete whole which is that um Ursula's great strengths were non-fiction were history and biography and politics and Carmen's strengths were the classic series and running the business she was very very good at that very intent that Virago should be profitable at all times and um that it that it should work and that it should go out to a general audience and not just um, a, a confined and small and converted audience. Um, so those were, and there was Harriet Spicer as well, who had worked with Carmen as her assistant and she became the production person there. So a lot of us learned our jobs on the job. We, 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 we sort of made Virago up as we went along. And then after me, Lenny Goodings joined to do publicity and she, of course, is still there. She's the, the person who never left. Um, but I had, um, I knew that I wanted to work editorially while I was typing invoices and making very bad tea, as Carmen used to point out to me, and take um, packages to the post office. And in those days, I, despite the fact that I was, and perhaps because I was a feminist, I used to wear um, high, very high heels and um, tight skirts and and basically clothes which were very unsuitable for going up and down five flights of stairs with bags full of post. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I continued that way. And, uh, and so I, my natural bent was towards reading the classics and working on them. And so I started doing that as I went along. But for a couple of years, I really did nothing but the very tough, um, you know, basic slave work. And which authors did you 
bring on as part of the the classic series? Well, we did it all together. It was very communal. But the ones, some of the ones that I particularly loved working on were Barbara Commons, who I knew. I met her before a few times before she died. Um, obviously, Rosamund Lehman was extraordinary. She was very much Carmen's um, contribution. I I went off into some areas which were slightly to the side. I got very interested in the Harlem Renaissance and I brought in Zora Neale Hurston, Nella Larson and Petrie, Dorothy West, all of which are having a renaissance at the moment, but, but we did those then and that was very exciting for me. I was also excited by the modernist writers, so Juna Barnes and Gertrude Stein and um, so forth. So... So, and uh, the surrealist Leonore Carrington, who again was still alive um, when when I republished her. Uh, so those those were, I think, the particular contributions that I brought. But but we we worked on it all together, and not just on finding the books, but commissioning the introductions, finding the introducers, and uh, and finding the pictures for the covers, which Carmen and I used to love doing. And where was it? Where was the money from? The money was well. We had a guarantor in Bob Gavron, um, and uh, and otherwise we had other small investors in Carmen. It included some money from Carmen, but uh, it was privately owned. And at the beginning, how was it perceived? I mean, mainly it was a bank. It was yeah. it was it was bankrolled by okay. the bank. Yes, right. sorry. Okay. And at the beginning, how was it perceived? by the wider publishing industry. Was there scepticism at the start? Yes, there was, um, particularly by the by the male establishment and um, by some critics, in particular Anthony Burgess, who was just so shocked and appalled when we did um, the Extraordinary Pilgrimage um, uh, series of books. Dorothy Richardson, who who invented the stream of consciousness, who wrote in the stream of consciousness before before Joyce. Um, but, but other people were very supportive and very welcoming and there were agents who would help us unearth um, books and uh, work with estates um, and a lot of goodwill from particularly from women academics. Um, Antonia Byatt was incredibly helpful to us. Susanna Clapp, who was then on the London Review of Books. Um, we had many, you know, wonderful people who, who gave us their knowledge and their enthusiasm and their introductions to their favourite writers. Um, you moved, I hope I get the details on this right this time, um, moved to Hamish Hamilton in 1984. Yes. Um, what made you make the move? Was yes. your remit a lot broader at Hamish Hamilton? Um, was it nice working with male authors again? Could you just tell us a little bit more about that, that transition? Well, I moved because I pretty much woke up one day and thought, if I don't do something about this, I'll spend my whole life here and I really need to leave home, grow up and leave home. I was 36, I think, and um, I thought I've just got to step outwards. We'd gone through an enormous amount over the 12 years at Virago. We'd, um, we'd been privately owned. We had been sold to Cape Chateau and Bodley Head when Carmen went there to run Chateau. We had done a management buyout and I was part of the management buyout team. So I went from being the slave to being editorial director and I owned a bit of the business at, at the end. Um, but also at that time, there was a revolution happening. We'd done the buyout. We were backed by Rothschild's Ventures. They, um, 
and we were doing fine. And then there was a very dramatic board meeting where Rothschild said that we had become stale as a management team. We'd been together for too long. There were too many of us and we had to change. Um, and uh, as they, they were the venture capitalists who backed us, they obviously had a very big say. And they asked me if I would think about taking over the running of it editorially and I was given a week to decide and at that moment was when Hamish Hamilton approached me to see if I wanted to be editorial director there and it just seemed to be the perfect thing and uh, the Hamish Hamilton list was lovely it was it was literary and distinguished and and uh, time for me to fly off so I did. I had a, just a question um, again about the, the Viraga time and this, this term slave you use, which is clearly tongue firmly in cheek. But as yes. a slave, you were paid, right, from the start. Yeah, and there's not much. <laughs> but, but there's so much. More than five pounds a week, though. But there's so much controversy now about unpaid internships in the creative industries oh, yes. and things. What was the situation back then? Were were people expected to work unpaid? No, to get no, in? there were no internships uh, except for paid um, traineeships there were there no that didn't exist I mean in a way my job on Art Monthly was like an internship because I was paid five pounds a week and I taught English as a foreign language to keep myself going so and I did that for two years and just pieced what, together what would five pounds a week today be it's not a rule much. of the podcast we always ask about money so we're not just yeah no no it's fine I'm just not very good on these things like maybe it would be 30 pounds a week I mean it was nothing really okay but I had one room in Whitechapel with a lot of mice and no bathroom and a shared lavatory with a Bangladeshi sweatshop and an old Irishman and that was four pounds a week um and so that was a sort of miracle it was quite frightening living there because it was before the East End was in any way thought of as chic it was um it was quite scary um, but it, it meant that I could do it. And then I used to earn bits and pieces. I, I taught the whole of the Chilean embassy before work, um, starting with the ambassador. And I, <laughs> I just did everything I could. So, and I was fine about that. I, I think I always say when I go to talk to students, it's all right for things to be hard in your 20s. And it's all right to be poor in your 20s. The important thing is to find out what it is you want to do. And that's what I was doing. And the other question I have about the Virago before we move on is this idea of a classic. Like, could you drill into a bit into that term? Do you think it's a useful term? Classic? Yeah. Yes, I do. I think it basically means something that's enduring, um, a work that's enduring. And of course, uh, you know, you can be pompous about it and say it's only a classic if it's taught at universities. But I think that the job we did of rescuing those female voices was extraordinary. And... I keep meeting women who said that it changed their lives, that Virago changed their lives, that they were brought up on them, that they felt that that there was a life out there that they hadn't known about. And, and I got that as a teenager when I remember reading Margaret Drabble and Nell Dunn when they first came out and thinking, ah, literature can be about ordinary women's ordinary lives, that they don't have to be these big epic books um you know it was a, it was a revelation to me and that carried through with me to virago um so virago has changed the landscape for for female artists um writers yeah i'd say um to return to kind of hamish hamilton which did you take that sensibility then did you take a lot of female authors on in your list yes. there 
did you I always have what you're looking for yeah I always have and I took with me well the first first novel I ever commissioned in my life was Lucy Elman's Sweet Desserts and I was at Virago at the time and Lucy was a I was a depressed PhD student and writing these brilliant reviews in the t- art reviews in the TLS and I said Lucy why didn't you write a novel and she said oh I might and um, we gave her £1,000 for world rights on a book without a single word of it having been written and it became Sweet Desserts. And, and that's, a very, that's very unusual with fiction, right? That yeah. you would commission yes. rather than... Yes, yeah. it was lunatic. It was done on, uh, on instinct and Ursula backed me and said I, I could do it and it went on to win the Guardian Fiction Prize and sold in at least half a dozen countries and, you know, was a great success. Um, so she came with me and then the first first novel that I bought when I joined Hamish Hamilton was Esther Freud's Hideous Kinky and that was a landmark novel for me. I will never forget the experience of reading it and of meeting her and taking it on and I had to fight hard to take it on because I was then Penguin was structured so that you were only supposed to buy a book when you're in one of the hardback companies if you had support from a Penguin editor, from a paperback editor, and I didn't get support. And so I um, I had to fight very, very hard. And in the end, Andrew Franklin, who was the publishing director of Hamish Hamilton, said, OK, I could take it on without that support. And then it did very well, and we auctioned it. And guess what? Penguin bought the paperback rights. <laughs> Um, you mentioned the advance for Lucy Elman. Yes. Has the nature of advances changed at all? You read a lot of stories today about someone being awarded a six-figure advance. Yeah. Is that much more common now? Is has you know has a, was there a dip around the financial crisis and then has it picked up again? I think they've always it's always ebbed and flowed, and people have always been prepared to spend enormous sums of money. Obviously, at Virago, we couldn't. We didn't have the money, so we had to sort of make it up. Um, but in the corporations, when I joined Hamish Hamilton, some pretty large sums were being paid. Um, and they were throughout the industry. And there are moments when publishers draw in their horns and get anxious, but, but people will still, they will still chase the cash flow and they'll chase the big books. And I don't think that's ever changed. So by that time in the 80s, had the landscape become much more corporate? Had there been a lot of amalgamation? Yes, yes, a lot. And publishing had become vertical. Um, And in fact, Bloomsbury started in the 80s and they didn't have a paperback arm at the time and sold paperback rights to other companies, but it was kind of one of the last to do that. The the corporations had had really, they'd muscled in. And so having, you've been on both sides of that. Yes. What do you think are the relative advantages of both working for and perhaps being published by uh, independents versus corporates? I'm, I'm entirely an independent soul and spirit. I'm, I, it matters to me a great deal because I think that publishing books is about taste and conviction and culture and doing what you believe in. And I think that you can do that better if you're independent. And it's also about being agile and inventive and imaginative. And I think that's easier if you're independent. There are a lot of things that are much harder. You have to 
you have to, in a way, you have to work much harder, you have to fight, you have to be profitable if you're going to survive. But I think that's a good thing. So you can't have wastage and you can't afford to lose great sums of money. Um, but, I mean, I had four years in the corporate world and it didn't work for me. It was marvelous in lots of ways and I loved publishing men after all those years and I had enormous amount of fun. Um, it was still the days of drinking and carousing and, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the end of those old days of publishing. And I had an amazing time, but I was very disillusioned by corporate life. And so I left to become an agent because I thought it's just not for me. I don't want it. I'm glad you mentioned the agenting question because that was what I was about to ask. Um, what was the difference between the roles, obviously going on to the to the agenting side mm. of things, you're the kind of first point of contact mm. of a book. How do you, how did you find shaping a novel at that stage rather than on the editorial side of things? I was an agent who was very editorially involved because I, I had been an editor for 16 years. Um, there are plenty of agents aren't and they don't do any editing. So each one is different. What I loved was the, the fact that your relationship is directly with the author and for the author and you had only one concern which was the author you weren't split um, and uh, that emotionally suited me very well um, I liked the flexibility of agenting and I liked the fact that you could do anything you wanted you know and you didn't have to have balance if you have a publishing list you have to balance the list it's very important you can't publish you know three first novels about young women growing up in Sri Lanka you know you you have to you have to you have to have balance you don't as an agent um, but it is a huge responsibility being an agent because you feel responsible for the entire life of the author because you're responsible for the financial life of the author and so when things go wrong it's terrible and you feel very badly um, though you have no buffer as a publisher you have the buffer you have to look after the publishing house as well as the author you have to get that balance right but as a as an agent you feel it's all you did you poach any of the authors that you'd published while you were at quite a lot came to me I wouldn't say I poached them <laughs> but a lot of them came came to me yeah um, I mean I've had authors who I've worked with over many years yeah you were saying that as an agent you're only beholden to the author but surely it is more complex than that because you are commercially dependent in your relationships with publishing companies as well. Oh, yes, right? yes. No, and you need to have good relationships with publishing companies and a good agent facilitates um, those the relationship between the author and the publisher. No, no, there's a big responsibility there, but, but, you're, but that's not the same thing as... Um, as who you're working for. As an agent, you are. there's no question you're working for the author. And a good agent will work very well with the publisher. It's different. Do you enjoy, or did you enjoy, the kind of money side of things, the haggling, as well as the editing and working on a manuscript? Yeah. Did you enjoy the sales I, aspect of it? I, 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 I did. I'm, I love bargaining. I come from, my mother's family were traders. They were Moroccan Jews who had caravans that went from Timbuktu to Essaouira. And I think it's very much in my genes. If you put me into a souk, into a Medina, I'll start bargaining. And it, I just can't stop doing that. And I do, I, I, I did enjoy it. I mean, it's scary as well, um, but, uh, but it's exciting, yeah. 
do you did you personally and do people in general make more money as agents than in executive positions in publishing companies it completely depends there's some agents that can hardly make any money at all poor things and others that make fortunes um and in publishing you don't earn much money until you get higher up so you have many years of working at a pretty low level um but agenting the scary thing about agenting is if you think about it in my day it was 10 percent; it's now 15 percent. it's not that much money you have to do a lot of deals or you have to have one or two enormous authors and i was doing fine but i didn't have any enormous authors i'd had some wonderful successes like amanda form amanda foreman's georgina um uh, you know that was that was fantastic, but it's not the same as having Jeffrey Archer or Jilly Cooper or you know Bernard Cornwall, who was in our agency. You know, it, if you're a literary agent, a literary literary agent, it's harder to make a, you know really good money. And how did you go about putting your list together? I know you said that you'd had working relationships with authors already but mm. in terms of finding new mm. authors did they mostly come to you because you had an established profile or did you read around a lot and, yes. and go out and find people actively very much word of mouth I've always gone to a lot of literary festivals um, because I find it a great way to meet people and I've, I've often met people in very strange situations so yeah, I've, in giving talks, I've always given talks everywhere. Um, so, for example, Carmela Shamsi, I met when she was a student at a uh, university in upstate New York, and I had to give a creative writing workshop, and she wrote this beautiful story, and we kept in touch. Um, Tishani Doshi, I met in a breakfast in B&B at Hay on Wye. I mean, you know, I really, I, I literally encounter authors in the strangest places. I I was not so good as other people are at reading things and pursuing. And also I was, I'm very biased towards fiction rather than non-fiction. And so um, it, it did tend to be, I think, just a lot of word of mouth. We've had uh, a number of literary agents on the, on the show. We've mm. also had a number of writers talking about their agents on mm. the show. And one thing that comes up, particularly people talk about starting out being that time immediately post-university in your 20s and that time when someone professionally first shows interest in your writing say it's an agent or an editor and how mm. that can be so tremendously exciting and so powerful but what can sometimes happen then not least because you're junior and you're not making any money for these people is that you end up in a pretty tendentious relationship with they they're theoretically your agent but they don't answer your emails you don't get back to them you know how both from the perspective of an aspirant writer um, do you avoid that happening? And you know, is that do you think that's a, a fair judgment of how these things sometimes work, or is that a misrepresentation of? I think the landscapes changed quite a lot because of the creative writing industry, which didn't really exist when I was there. So because of these creative writing courses, the agents will rush in and sign up people like crazy, and then I think a lot of it, a lot of the time, it doesn't work out. Um, I don't think you should ever take anyone on unless you feel really seriously about them. And that, and I think that you have to be prepared to see them through. And I, I feel that as a publisher as well. Um, uh, we all have to let people go, and it's very painful. But on the whole, you should embark on a relationship thinking this is going to be a relationship that's going to last for many years. 
And are there any kind of broader do's and don'ts you'd say to people looking to approach an agent for the first time? I think that it's important to think about who the agent is and what their taste is and what kind of people they represent because it's like joining a family. You you want to think, you know, is this a family I want to be part of? Does it feel right for me? Um, and I think that's quite an instinctual thing. But I think I think doing that research matters a lot. I, I also think it's really important to meet that person and to maybe meet with, if you're in a position to, three or four agents because it's such a personal relationship. It's one of the most personal relationships of your life. And again, you have to feel happy with that person and have an instinctual trust of them. And on both sides, as an agent, I once had a very well-known writer come to see me and he walked into my room and I was literally frightened of him. There was a strange atmosphere in the room and we had this, what I thought was a very tense meeting. And then a few days later, I thought he'll never want to come to me. And I got a letter saying he wanted to come to me and I wrote back and I said, I, I can't represent you because I'm frightened of you. <laughs> and I wouldn't be any good as your agent. <laughs> so, what did he reply? I can't even remember if he replied. <laughs> How did his hint of menace manifest itself? It was in the air. You could feel it in the air. Was he a killer? <laughs> Who knows? Go on, tell us. Who was it? A message from our sponsor, the Faber Academy Creative Writing School. Everyone has a novel in them, or so the saying goes. But not everyone knows where to begin. The Getting Started Beginner's Fiction course at the Faber Academy will teach you everything you need to call yourself a writer. By studying stimulus texts and completing exercises, you will gain an understanding of all the important elements of storytelling. The course offers advice on good writing habits, turning ideas into stories and engaging readers. You will receive constructive and rigorous feedback on your writing throughout. There are three versions of the Getting Started Beginner's Fiction course. The evening class and the day class consist of 12 two-hour sessions hosted at Faber's headquarters in Bloomsbury, London. The online class, meanwhile, offers eight weeks of learning and support to be completed at your own pace. Places for all of these courses to commence in April are still available. Always Take Notes listeners can receive a 10% discount by using the code ALWAYSTAKENOTES2020. To book, go to faberacademy.co.uk. Can we talk about Bloomsbury now? Yes. So how you how you you moved back from uh, gamekeeper to poacher or poacher to gamekeeper? Yeah, whatever it, it is, I never know. Uh, how it came about and where Bloomsbury was then, and you you came in like mid Potter mania. Yeah, right? early Potter mania. It was very early on. Third book, I think. Yeah. yeah. So it was. I joined. I'm not really good on dates, but I remember this because it was the first of May, 1999, um, and. So Bloomsbury was still in Soho Square in one building. You knew everybody who was in the building. It was really small and uh, and very familial, which I always like. Um, and it was at the beginning of Potter, and it was a really exciting time and slightly bonkers time too because this comparatively small company had a take on this work with this what became a juggernaut but it was amazing seeing how everybody grew and 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 stepped up to the challenge of it but it was of course the children's department and I was in the adult department so I joined then as publishing director um, and the deal was that uh, in 
um, on the 1st of January 2000, Liz Calder would step down from being editor-in-chief and I would take over as that. But Liz was still there for some years. Um, and so I could sort of feel my way into the role. But Bloomsbury was a list I'd always loved. The job came about simply because I had lunch with Liz one day and I was to talk about an author of mine who was with Bloomsbury, um, who I think there was some problems with. <laughs> I can't remember now. And she said, um, I'm not really here to talk about that. I, I, you know, I'm here to talk about my job. So you exhaled slightly. <laughs> and, yes. And I, I, I can't believe this now. I took a long time to think about it. I took four months and no one was in any hurry. Because I knew it was going to be the most important career decision of my life and also because I felt very responsible to my authors, many of whom had come with me from publishing into being, becoming my, my client as an agent. Um, but now I can't imagine why I took more than four minutes. <laughs> but anyway, I took my time and, and, then, and then I said yes. And thank heavens because it's been the most creative and the happiest work experience of my life so what does the role of editor-in-chief involve and what did it involve then and what does it involve now if your remit has changed at all it did change as it went on because the company grew and changed and it became a bigger role so the 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 job was to run the editorial department the adult editorial department but also to have my own list of books so I had a job as a full-time commissioning editor and I was running the department. And the department grew, plus we started a company in America. We had just started it when I joined, and we started a company in India. And there was a period when we were trying very hard to sort of bring the companies further together to, to, to meld. And so I was going to New York every month for two nights a month. Um, so I was doing a lot of work in America. But I didn't really notice how much the job had grown in that way that you just suck up what you're doing. And it's only now that I've stepped away from part of my job that I realized that it was enormous. And I didn't just have a full-time commissioning editor's job, but I was doing between 20 and 30 books a year on my own list. And most editors do 10, 15 books a year. So I was busy, but I, but I, but I loved it and had this and still have this remarkable department. Um, is that because you were a superwoman, or is that because other people <laughs> in other people in publishing are not working very hard? I mean, and I, um, and, I, and I would say that because there is a stereotype of like lunches, and you know, it being no, a soft not industry. Not any longer. Not any longer. The lunches are all over. <laughs> they're, they're, they're gone. I don't think it's a soft industry. I think all. I think publishers. I, I. I think agents have less work, considerably less work than publishers. But I think. I think commissioning editors all work extremely hard. And what nobody understands is that, every day you're in the office and you can't read in the office. You can't edit in the office. So when do you do that? You do nights. You do weekends. Editors don't have weekends. We often don't have holidays. We're having to work on holidays. I think. I think editors have extremely stressful and difficult jobs and they're so responsible and if you're an editor which everyone at Bloomsbury is who has very high standards editorially then you put a hell of a lot of legwork in you sometimes can read six seven eight drafts of a manuscript as well as working you know reading submissions and in the 
lead up to the London Book Fair, an editor at Bloomsbury, because we don't have lots of different lists at Bloomsbury, can get 20 or 30 manuscript submissions a week. So it's, it's a big job. It's not a soft job at all. And in terms of my job, um, I was blessed with an astonishing amount of energy. And um, <laughs> luckily, uh, um, so I managed it. But I did end up having a heart attack three years ago. And I think that that... Um, that was that really <laughs> that was where it ended it back. yeah um, how many books a week do you read i don't know it just depends i can't yeah i really do um harry potter is credited with transforming the fortunes of, of bloomsbury yes. in some ways um and during your time there you've helped add the cookery list bloomsbury circus and raven books is yes that right? yes how did those imprints fit together and also the kind of more general expansion of the company i know ib taurus was added last yes year. yes um, it was well one of the so i'll answer the second bit first which was um the general expansion of the company obviously you know we're a plc we have shareholders and we have to grow and we had all this money from harry potter and what were we to do with it and what we did, and this was nothing to do with me, this was uh, Nigel Newton and Richard Charkin, which was to buy a lot of small specialist lists and knit them together and to also start an academic division, which I think was brilliant because it, it gave ballast because trade publishing is so tricky and it's so up and down and the ups are amazing and the downs are desperate. And uh, and the, the ballast of specialist publishing, is it's, it's a lovely even keel that it that it keeps um and with all those um metaphors of the sea we had yachting lists as well <laughs> um uh so so ib taurus is part of that it's then that's gone into the specialist division it's one i'm particularly thrilled about us having because it's such a distinguished list i think it's wonderful um but in terms of my bit of it the the general trade division um Cookery, Nigel and I decided to start a cookery division and then we hunted for the best cookery editor and that was Richard Atkinson who we found, who's genius. Um, and how that fits in is that it's simply, it's the best, it's quality, it's beautiful. It's, um, Bloomsbury's always cared a great deal about aesthetics, so our, making our books look good and we did that way before the new vogue to make beautiful hardbacks we always did and when Bloomsbury launched we gave them ribbons and deep flaps and they were gorgeous um so the so it was about having a very high standard in the cookery list and very good writing as well um and then circus was a different thing because that was really looking at the list we had and then splitting it into two lists and the circus list we see as being the slightly edgier more experimental side of fiction and then non-fiction again sort of memoir um younger in tone and voice often um but that gave us um the ability to to publish a bit more but also we ha we suffered terribly with prizes and that having only one imprint we could only make for the the you know the prizes where you can only submit a very small number of titles um it expanded our prize capability which was marvelous and has been you know a great thing for us and then raven which was the sort of the last big thing that I did before I stepped aside from the management. Um, we had been thinking of a crime list for some time, but again, it was getting the right editor for that, somebody who had 
um, the right kind of cultural um, background, who had um, a strong sense of their own taste and and what Bloomsbury is, and who was you know literary really, um, and we found Alison Hennessy, who is perfect, and she created the list. Can we talk about how the budget of a publisher, maybe not just you at Bloomsbury, but in general, how is it broken down in terms of what the firm is spending between marketing, publicity, advances? How how does that look? It's usually a percentage of the budget on the book, um, so it's quite straightforward. But then if something starts to happen, then money is shoveled from one pot into another. I, I meant more generally for the firm as a whole, like how much of its outgoings are actually physically printing the book, how much is... Uh, you know, the marketing spend, how much is... The whole accountancy? company. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the the biggest problem is is the printing and warehousing because okay. that's that's very expensive. And if you get it wrong, so the, the whole question of print runs is a perpetual nightmare for publishers. Um, but just, uh, you know, overheads, it's always a balance between overheads and and your cash and what you're what you're bringing in and if your overheads get too high then you're in trouble um and that's a sort of that's quite a basic thing whether it's a tiny publisher or a big publisher and what so what fraction uh is spent on advances of turnover you i've no idea because it's completely different in every division um, and I don't even know because it varies. We don't have a formula. I mean, publishing is just not formulaic. Probably academic publishing does because it, that is a very settled, a very set kind of publishing. But trade publishing is so volatile that it can be that yours, the book you spent the smallest amount of money on in a, as an advance is the book that makes you the most. And so, and we don't, we don't have. We, you know. But then there must be a breakdown at the managerial level, like we're spending X percent on advances, Y percent on marketing, Z percent on okay. overheads, right? How do those numbers look? I can't really, I can't talk about that side of it. So, I mean, but what fraction is going on advances, roughly? Not just at Bloomsbury, but within a publishing company, how much of the money of their turnover is spent on advances, on actually paying the writers? I don't know. I don't know because, and again, it changes. There isn't there isn't a, a single amount because you might suddenly get an enormous author who you want, and you'll spend. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, hardly at all at Bloomsbury, seven figures. But on the whole, you, it's lots of small amounts, you know, and you don't know what you're going to be offered. You you don't know. But there must be a budget, right? There must be, like, we spend... There's an advances like, budget, but to be honest, we don't look at it. We just know what we should be. We, we do it, you know, by what we feel is right. And you have a certain number of books to publish every year. We don't look at the budget when we're, when we're thinking to buy a book. You must look at the budget. We maybe. don't. To change tack slightly, um, at Bloomsbury, you've managed the likes of Margaret Atwood and George Saunders, some... some prize-winning and, and some massive names in the in the publishing industry. How does managing that relationship work when it's someone of, of real um, acclaim? Well, these relationships usually grow over a period of many years. So Margaret Atwood I met at Virago when we published Stuff Sing and all her books in paperback. And so I knew her from in a way since I was a child in publishing. And when I joined Bloomsbury, she was there. She'd had this long relationship with Liz Calder. George Saunders, I didn't bring into Bloomsbury. Um, uh, he was 
he arrived at about the time that I did or soon after and he was a short story writer who got some very nice reviews and sold absolutely nothing absolutely nothing for years and years and years and years you were lucky if you sold 3,000 copies of a book of his but we believed in him and we kept going with him and the first time something happened at all was with 10th of December and he won the the first um, folio prize and so it sold a bit better and that was all and then Lincoln and the Bardo came in and so and everything and everything happened but that was a case of just keeping going with somebody who you know was we loved him we believed in his genius but we had no idea if he would ever make us any money or make himself any money how hard or frustrating is it when that happens to keep you know presumably an author isn't selling very well he comes back with another book or she comes back with another book that's brilliant is it hard to make a business case or if you really believe in their writing do you just think time will time will tell sometimes you have to fight with your colleagues because we all buy books together and sometimes you lose you know um, because it's important that when you take on a book that you have enough excitement in the company it's not just coming from you although sometimes you know when I bought Eat Pray Love nobody frankly apart from another editor really you know was engaged with it um, but nobody else wanted it in Britain so I didn't have to spend very much money on it and um, and it, it 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 happened you know uh, what, what are your views on on ebooks I think they're marvelous I love them I mean I think any way to read books is a good thing you know I think people get so excited and upset about ebooks and it would be like saying oh paperbacks are terrible everybody ought to, like when Alan Lane invented the paperback you'd say oh no must read it in the hardback um I I think physical books are beautiful and important and bookshops are extremely important but the ability the, the point about ebooks is that they're democratic that they're flexible that people can travel the world and they have access to every book in the world um they're good for authors and now you know it's all settled and you kind of know which books are going to do well in ebook um they they are and anything that helps people read is a good thing and then for people what's interesting i think about ebooks is that young people not very engaged with them everybody thought it would all be sort of young people who like playing computer games it's complete bollocks yeah i was going to ask how did the expectation of such how the nonsense because young people you know they love books because because they don't have much money and it's an exhibition of who you are and um you know as Anthony paul said they furnish a room they you know they're objects to treasure but when you get to my age frankly you can't you can't fit deal in. with you can't fit in any more books you know you have to get rid of books plus your eyesight's going and an ebook you can make the print as large <laughs> as you like there are many upsides for those of us of advanced age <laughs> and similar feeling i'm assuming for for audiobooks but i mean the the stephen fry um versions of the Harry Potter books are much, much loved. By, yes, by and uh, what I found out recently, which I didn't know, which is fascinating, is that actually um, it's non-fiction that does particularly well in audio, um, much more so than fiction. I would have thought it would be the other way around. So how has the... You think, do you think that the market is now at a steady state with e-books in terms of, you know, what, yeah, work for Yeah, it's found its way, yeah. And how does that look in terms it of... It looks, with non-fiction, it's very small, 
And then with fiction, genre fiction, it's large. Um, and then in a way, the more popular the fiction is, the larger the percentage of ebooks. Um, is yeah. that because people are embarrassed? You know, like no, no, Fifty no. Shades of Grey. No, me. well, that's different. That's <laughs> that's just yes. Obviously, you'd rather you, be you, reading an ebook of Fifty Shades you of Grey. You say that, but I saw many, many quite copies a, of that on the tube at the time. Quite <laughs> a lot of you know women standing outside their offices reading it. Um, uh, no, it's just that if you want to read something from page one to page two hundred and fifty-eight in one gulp, an ebook does it. Um, if it's a book that you want to look at pictures in, you want to, you know, have as an object, it's a different thing. It's a different kind of reading experience. Reading ebooks is more like watching Netflix, you know. Mm. So it would be that those kinds of books. As we approach the end of our recording time, um, I'd like to kind of circle back to the role of women in the industry. How mm. much do you think it's changed? Because publishing, famously, is, is, is quite female dominated mm, it is when I worked at Hamish Hamilton I published Marilyn French's The War Against Women and for my sales conference presentation I looked at the whole of the Pearson group own Penguin and it was very interesting because there are a lot of women at the bottom a lot of women and then it got less and less and less and less and then when you got to the top boards of the whole corporation there were no women to be seen um, famously, of course, there was Marjorie Scardino later, but um, I, I suspect it's still rather like that. Mm. Um, and we had a lot of very, very um, distinguished and important women in publishing, but strangely, they have now, some of them have retired and they've not been replaced by women. So it, I, I suspect if you looked at it, that the proportion will have gone down from mm. 10 years ago. Why, do you think there's any particular reason for that or just no idea i don't know i don't know and what about the um the class side of that piece do you how um how middle class does publishing is publishing still i'm afraid it's still very middle class i think there are problems in every sense with diversity and publishing and publishers have to do a lot of work um to to get that right and I think that attending to internships is one of them mm. and I'm very pleased to say at Bloomsbury we now have six month paid internships um, and th those it's those aspects that will that will help address it. And in terms of diversity is there an imprint at Bloomsbury that's paying particular attention to publishing books by authors of colour or is it just we, kind of a more organic We thing? have done that. For, I have to say I'm so proud that we have done that from the very beginning. And our list is incredibly diverse. We have literally, literally uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of authors from the very way back from the days of Liz publishing Michael and Darcy. The One of the first writers I took on was Abdul Razak Gurna. Um, and all the way through, it's an incredibly international list, and I find it quite amusing that publishers are all scrambling to make their list diverse, because mm. as always has been, and what I'm are, really proud of that. What are other publishers getting wrong, if it's if it's something that you've been doing for since day I think one? It's, do you know what, it, I think the thing about publishing is that it's all about your personal taste, and it everything for an editor springs from their personal taste everything it's the beginning the middle and the end of what you do and Liz Calder came from New Zealand her she naturally looked outwards I come from you know quite a complicated background um, and 
uh, in my life, one of the most important things in literary terms that happened to me was my father, who used to work for the national, uh, the um, West African Examination Syndicate in his summers, came back one day with a book, which was Things Fall Apart by Jinua Achebe. And I was about 14 when I read it. And everything shifted for me from that. And everything I've done as a publisher has, has, has been affected by that. So I would say that that plus plus my years in feminist feminist publishing with the two have been the two sides of everything that I've done. Have you seen the the writing about ideological diversity as another attraction of diversity? You know, yes. that if you're saying that you know one makes efforts to have uh, increasing ethnic diversity the people one's publishing um, but but that there is a a risk of a in pursuit of that, to have a rather narrow ideological prism. Do you think that's a valid critique, or do you? Uh, think do you mean I, by ideological? That, that, that publishing what do you mean? Is, is is populated by a relatively homogenous group of people who are who share a relatively homogenous set of political well, beliefs. We have um, we have um, we have a, a list at Bloomsbury called Continuum, which mm-hmm. is run by marvelous Robin Baird Smith, um, who publishes Douglas Murray. Um, he publishes books about the Pope. Um, you know, he's, he's was that deliberate? Was that like this is no, our it, sort of no? It our, was like, right we, we bought him. We bought him. We you know we bought him because we thought he was a brilliant publisher, and he also had this fantastic backlist and this classics list. But we celebrate him and we love having him there. But on my side of it, yeah, we're much more left wing. We're you know we're very different. Um, but I think we you know between us we have rather a good balance. <laughs> um, to wrap things up, uh, perhaps you could tell us about your favourite title that you've worked on, not necessarily in terms of financial success, but yeah. something you're, you've been particularly proud of. Can I tell you on. about a book that's coming? Of course. I'm particularly excited and yeah. proud. So this is um, a new novel by Colin McCann, and it's called A Paragon, and we're publishing it next February. And it's a novel about two men who are alive and... One of them is Israeli and the other one is Palestinian and they both lost their daughters to the conflict. The Israeli lost his daughter to a suicide bomb and the Palestinian lost his daughter to the bullet of an Israeli soldier. And these two men met and they became friends and they go around the world telling people about their daughters. And out of these two men, Colin McCann has constructed the most beautiful and moving and important novel that that I could ever imagine. It's one of the greatest novels I've ever read. It's one of the greatest novels of my career, perhaps the greatest novel of my career. I, I could not, I, I can't begin to describe to you how much this book means to me. And if that um, if that it. scary lady at Virago was here today, would she would she rate your cover copy for that? <laughs> she and I were in Palestine together okay. on um, the Palestinian Literature Festival, and she turned to me and she said, "Darling, we can't do much," meaning we the writers, because by then, of course, Carmen is a writer. She said, "But you can, you can publish, and that is something that I can do and I do do." And this novel has fallen into my arms and I feel very lucky and privileged to have it. Brilliant. Well, we should draw that to a close, but thank you for being such a stellar guest and wishing you all the best, not just for that novel, but all your other projects. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, it's us again. Firstly, Rachel, great to have you joining Always Take Notes. Can you explain to the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, I work at The Economist, 
where I edit all the online culture coverage. So film, TV, art, music, basically everything that isn't in the paper. So, yeah. Well, it's really excellent to have you uh, here on the show and looking forward to uh, doing interviews with you going forward. What did you think of our discussion with Alexandra Pringle on her gently swaying houseboat? I enjoyed it. I think I probably would have been a bit more seasick if it had been any longer. But uh, she was a very entertaining and generous guest. I really enjoyed hearing about the early days of Virago and its support um, and the people who... and its supporters and its critics. Um, Anthony Burgess, we're looking at you. Indeed. Um, and also how she's championed diversity in all its forms throughout her career. I think it's really interesting with uh, these interviews with very senior people to get a sense of what the world was like uh, when they were starting out and also what was very different and what is the same. Now, we're also under strict orders from our producer to uh, give a shout out to all the great episodes we've got coming up. So, Rachel, who is on the cards? Next up, we have Jay Rayner, a food critic and reporter. Then we have Lisa Tadeo, the best-selling author of Three Women. And after that, we have Giles Hattersley, the Features Director at British Folk. It's a smorgasbord of audio content. Of delights, yes. And we hope you'll be with us all the way. Uh, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media editor is Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes and on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And if you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can find us on Patreon at Always Take Notes and give us lots of money. Thank you. (laughs) 